Last week's message was entitled, For the Weak Conscience. And this week we have the opposite, or the other side, I should say, which is for the strong conscience. Let me read verse 13 again. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather, meaning instead of passing judgment, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I somehow or other came across online once a series of videos entitled Flex Your Rights. And it was a series of videos that were aimed at citizens about how they could conduct themselves in an interaction with the police. They were explaining search warrants. They were explaining things like arrest laws, what the police could and could not do to you, and uh, the rights that you had. For example, you don't have to submit to a search without a warrant and that kind of thing. And it was really teaching people over and over again, flex your rights. Let them know they can't harass you. They can't push you around. Now, that might be good advice in context that as Americans, we have rights and that it is not against the law for us to assert those rights. But that phrase, flex your rights, is the opposite of how the Bible teaches us to handle disagreements over secondary issues. And as I said last week, these aren't even really secondary or tertiary. These are matters of, as Paul said earlier, opinion or conviction. The subject that Paul is coming at here concerned primarily the law of Moses and especially the Sabbath day. Are we to eat only the foods that Moses permitted us or not? Are we to keep the Sabbath day in accordance with the scripture or not? Some were observing those things and some weren't. And as we've talked about throughout the book of Romans, there was a mixed crew in the church at Rome. There were Gentiles and there were Jews. And because the Jews had been separated from Rome when they were kicked out of Rome, when they came back, the Gentiles had developed a Christianity that was not strictly and explicitly Jewish any longer because the influences had grown up differently. And Paul, apparently, who had never been to Rome, had heard that this was an issue. It was an issue in a lot of his churches. Read Galatians, read Colossians, read Hebrews. We don't know if Paul wrote that or not, but this was a big issue in the early days of the church. And Paul writes how to handle these things. And we discussed that while this is specifically addressing matters of kosher food, observing the Sabbath, observing the feast days, and that sort of thing, it can be applied to any number of issues. Paul gives almost the same exact teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, talking about food that had been sacrificed to idols. Some had a very strong conviction that we shouldn't have anything to do with that. Or others were, peop others were saying, who cares? An idol isn't anything. It's just a statue. So who cares if somebody danced in front of it for a while before they barbecued the meat? And this was a matter of, of conflict. And Paul gives the same kinds of instructions. And last week, I gave a big, long list of the kinds of things that fall into this category. I'm not going to go through them all again, but things like where you're going to school your children. Homeschool, private school, public school. Bible doesn't say anything about that, so there's difference of opinion. Matters like personal style, the clothing you wear, the style of your hair, piercings, tattoos, things like that. Things like alcohol and tobacco. Things that either are not addressed in Scripture or which there is instruction given about the abuse of these things, but not about their use themselves. There's difference of conviction in the church. Political differences can fall into this. Church style can fall into this. I prefer more gospel. I prefer more hymns. Or I prefer contemporary worship. I want the 
lights down and I want colored lights and a little bit of smoke. I want things to look like an old cathedral from the Middle Ages. That's how I worship. There's differences of opinions. None of these things are explicitly commanded or prohibited in Scripture. And where there is no explicit commandment or prohibition in Scripture, there is liberty. And that's what we talked about last time. So the first half of verse 13 summarizes everything Paul has said up to this point. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And that is what we talked about last time. So I'm not going to get into it so much today, although there is some interplay between these two lessons. Passing judgment, meaning you don't evaluate somebody's status or maturity or acceptance as a Christian based on things that have nothing to do with matters of sin or the grace of Jesus expressed in the gospel. God has already accepted us, and it's not up to you to judge anybody. But the other half of verse 13 is today's lesson, when he says, But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So if last week's lesson, for those of you who have a weak conscience, was to not judge each other, those of you who have a strong conscience, your lesson is never put a stumbling block before another person. I'm going to remind everybody, as I did last time, that we need to be respectful to one another even as we listen to this message. And some of the things I'm going to say are going to be said very strongly in one direction. And so some of you are going to be really approving of that, and some of you it's going to be a little challenging for you. So, as I said last week, maybe our amens and our yes lords and the little nudges we give each other, maybe maybe hold off on some of those this week because we're talking about getting along on matters with which we disagree. So let's not be staking our flag out there for everybody to see and we can know who's the first church of the right on and all the rest of it. So just be respectful even as we listen. I'm not saying everybody's got to be all quiet and sober, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. We're looking at the other half. And so I intend to talk about the other half as fully this week as I did last week. And the key definition we have to look at in order to understand this passage is what Paul means by a stumbling block. Because he's going to use that word a lot. And when I was growing up in youth group, I heard that word stumble an awful lot thrown at me from various youth leaders. So we've got to know what this word means. The Greek word is scandalon. You can hear our English word in there, can't you? Scandal. It comes from this word, stumbling block, which literally means a trap or a snare. Now think of a bear trap where you're walking through the woods and it clamps on your leg or one of those things that, you know, whips you up in the air and hangs you up by your leg. I don't know if those are real or if they're just in pirate movies, but they're cool anyway. That's a stumbling block, all right? This is anything... Here's a definition. A stumbling block, a scandal on, is anything that causes another Christian to sin. That's an important definition. More specifically, and we'll be expanding on this as we go through, anything that causes another believer to waver in their faith or to violate their faith, or in some context when it talks about a stumbling block, it doesn't just mean to trip up and have a hard day in your faith, but to lose your faith entirely. For somebody to stumble and then to fall that's what the Bible means when it talks about falling away. So if we're going to use the illustration, as the Bible often does, of the Christian life as a walk, that we're walking a narrow road, don't put something in front of somebody that will cause them to trip and then to fall and no longer walk along that road. Now, as I say that, that might seem a little more intense than what you're used to when you hear that word, stumbling. Well, that's just causing me to stumble. 
Well, slow down there, friend, because stumbling is a very serious thing. It can lead to the loss of somebody's faith. It can cause them to walk away from Jesus or to act in such a way that they're no longer bearing good fruit. Let's look how Jesus put this. Now, the ESV doesn't translate this verse with the same English word, but it's the same Greek word. So let me read this. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. There's gentle Jesus, meek and mild for you right there. He says, you, you might as well just tie yourself to a giant rock and jump in the ocean rather than let me get hold of you. If you're going to, he says, cause one of my little ones to sin. That word, cause to sin, is the Greek word skandalizo, to scandalize. It's the same thing, to ensnare or entrap or cause to fall one of my little children. He says, whoever acts in such a way that it causes one of these kids to walk away from the true and living God, you got, you got trouble coming your way. So this is what we're going to determine not to do. And I think when we understand what that is, none of us would want to do that. We want to see people saved. We want to be evangelists. We don't want to be putting stumbling blocks in front of people. We want to be helping invite them into the congregation. So the principle, I hope, is well understood. But what Paul is going to tell us is that while we are free in Christ Jesus, and everything I said last week remains true, to exercise your freedom at the expense of your brother's salvation is a sin. I think we can get that, right? Say, well, I'm free in Jesus. Yes, but if your exercise of that freedom causes your brother to sin or to fall or, God forbid, to renounce Jesus Christ, then it's not freedom anymore, is it? So let's keep going. That's, that's the statement of the principle, and he's going to explain it now a little further in verses 14 through 18. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. When you understand that very strong definition of stumbling block, words like do not destroy the one for whom Christ died make an awful lot more sense than what we tend to say, which is I was offended by that. Right? He says, you're destroying the one for whom Christ died. Now, in, in verses 20 to the end of the chapter, Paul is going to give some very, very clear and very specific and practical application for those who have strong consciences. But before he does that, Paul wants to make sure that there is no misunderstanding about the theology and the truth behind this discussion. And I want you to see this in verse 14. And this is going to be going back a little to what we talked about last week, but I'm only doing that because Paul does. We're following along here. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Make no mistake about how you read this. We're talking about the weak conscience, somebody that is extra sensitive to matters in which they are free in Christ, and the strong conscience, the person who says, I'm free in Christ and I feel free to participate in all these things. Paul unequivocally agrees with the strong conscience theologically. You have to see that. 
Because especially those of us sometimes who have weak consciences can use passages like this in order to get our way. You have to see that Paul is agreeing with those that were saying we don't need to keep the Sabbath nor observe the kosher food laws. Nothing is unclean in itself, he says. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? We've been going through the book of Leviticus on Wednesday nights. We've been talking about unclean clothing and unclean leprosy in your house and unclean food and unclean days and unclean behavior. And Paul in the New Testament, Romans 14 says, nothing is unclean. That's liberty in Christ Jesus. He agrees with it. And this is a biblical principle. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. Defiling of the soul cannot come by way of the body. Let me say that again. Defiling of the soul cannot come by way of the body. You're not going to do something to your outward body that can affect your soul, positively or negatively. But in context, we mean negatively here. Now, Paul is not just making this up. Look what he says in verse 14. I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a very interesting thing for him to say. What is it about Jesus that causes him to think this? You could even translate this. It's not the primary way to translate it, but it could be translated, I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus, or I have been persuaded by Jesus himself. Which tells us that Paul was probably familiar with what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. And we've noticed this a lot. I didn't know this. I'm learning stuff right along with y'all. But in Romans 12 to the end of, of the book, Paul makes an awful lot of very similar statements to what Jesus did, which doesn't you know, surprise us, but it's just important to remember, Paul knew the words of Jesus. They were passing around the stories and, and the sayings and the teachings of Jesus well before they were written down. So that's why Paul's language very often echoes what Jesus said. But let me read this. Mark 7, 18-23, establishing the principle that defiling of the soul cannot come by way of the body. Nothing is unclean. Because Jesus said to them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled... And then Mark gives us a little parenthesis here explaining what Jesus meant by that. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Amen? It's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So when Paul says, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, he likely has this teaching in mind. That Jesus declared all foods clean because he said, you can't be defiled by something going inside of you and only touching your body. Your heart, your soul is something different. It's similar to when Jesus said, don't fear those that can only kill the body, but fear the one that can kill body and soul in hell. So, that's where Paul is getting this. Nothing is unclean of itself. And I can add, by using the term unclean, and later on he's going to use the term clean, Paul is explicitly using legal terminology. And that's legal with a capital L. Law of Moses, legal terminology. Clean and unclean. He's going back to his Jewish roots when he uses these words. But he, he uses them to make a very New Testament point. Nothing is unclean in itself. 
Physical things do not have moral characteristics. Those are matters of the spirit. So you cannot eat something and thereby damage your soul or drink something or attend some event or go somewhere or be in a place. Things, like, uh, things that are in the physical don't affect your soul. And I ought to say, and there will be a day for us to spend the entire service talking about this. But by saying this in verse 14, let me just remind you that the Bible presents us with a gospel of liberty. Didn't we read that in Romans 8? You did not receive the spirit of slavery again to submit to the Lord as, as to a harsh taskmaster. You received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters where the spirit of the Lord there is, is there is what? Liberty. For freedom, Christ has set you free, Galatians 5 says. Because you are saved not by your works, but by grace. It's all by grace. It's all by God reaching down to save you. It's all by the blood of Jesus washing you clean. Therefore, according to Jesus, according to Paul, and according to the other apostles, when you are in Christ Jesus, the whole world that God created is open to you to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Man, meditate on that a little bit this week. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's in that passage talking about money. He was talking to rich people that were being harassed by other people that were trying to make them feel bad for having money. He says God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Psalm 104, verse 15. I read uh, one, of this, one of these statements last week. I'm going to read all of them. God gives us, he says, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. What's the psalmist saying? God made the world and all the things in it to bless you, to be enjoyment for you. And in case you're still not convinced, 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 through 5, listen to what Paul said to his disciple. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Catch that last bit? It is made holy. When you as a Christian get hold of something, it becomes holy. Now, I'll remind you again, are we talking about matters of sin here? No, we're talking about neutral things. Neutral things in the hands of a Christian become holy things. When God created the world, he looked and he saw and he said that it was what? Good. So before I launch into the application and correction of those who have a strong conscience, can I just remind those of you that have a weak conscience, you're not in sin for having a weak conscience, but don't ever be the one that is trying to provide and allow less liberty for those in the church that have fully grasped the grace of God. When you fully understand that you are saved by grace alone, as Paul said, the whole world opens up to you. So don't be the one trying to close it off again. Paul's about to stick up for you a little bit here, but he reminds you here, don't forget the theology behind this, which is that nothing is unclean in itself. Now, with all that said, there's another factor to consider. So Paul states the principle. We're not going to stumble one another. Keeping in mind that everything is, is, is clean and is made holy by the use of a Christian, there's another matter to consider, and that is the fact of conscience. That your heart and your attitude, your faith, wherever it is placed, 
will affect you and your standing before God. He says, nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Those who are unable in good conscience, and I'm not talking about people that are being stubborn and selfish. Those who are unable in good faith to richly enjoy all things like kosher foods that Paul's talking about here. Those who just cannot shake the fact that this is wrong. Those who might know intellectually that we are free in Christ Jesus, but in their heart, that when they come to the moment to do this thing, their conscience is going crazy, their heart is thumping out their chest, and they just can't bring themselves to do it. Somebody in that position, Paul says, has a weak conscience. And for that person to engage in that activity would be unclean. It would be sinful. Because consider, if you're, when you violate your conscience, you're doing something that you believe to be wrong. And as Christians, we're never to do things that we believe to be wrong. And just because somebody says that it's right, if you do not have the same level of faith that they do to step out and do that, then it's going to be wrong for you. If you violate, as we say, that conviction now, you might say, well, I've looked at the Bible, and I don't, I don't think I should feel convicted, but I still do. Well, then don't violate that conviction. You know, we used the example of, uh, of alcohol last time. The Bible we just read in Psalm 104 has given wine to glad in the heart of man. Jesus turned the water into wine, all of that, right? However, there's a lot of instruction in the Bible about not abusing it and not being a drunkard and all that sort of thing. So there are many Christians that have just said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this, period. And there's folks that were raised that way. And you grow a little older and you look at the word of God and it says, okay, I, I know theologically that this is not sinful and that it can't touch my heart. So I'm not going to make a big deal about it for somebody else. However, if you yourself were to be presented with a drink, you would be feeling all of that same level of conviction, all that same level of fear and all of that, that as if it was a real sin. And even though you know in your head and your heart, you're not there. So for you then to take that drink would be for you to violate your conscience, which is wrong. So do you see how these things interplay with one another? There is liberty in Christ Jesus, but there are those whose conscience is weak. It's not that they're not saved. It's that they have not yet been able to bring what they do fully into the subjection of the grace of God. And because these are neutral matters, they don't have to. You follow me? It's not that you have to get this or you can't be saved. No, these things are neutral. It doesn't matter if you do them or not. But if somebody has a strong heart conviction about something, they shouldn't violate it. So the lesson for those of you that have a strong conscience and are free indeed to do all things in Christ Jesus, you must purpose in your heart. You will never cause somebody else to violate their conviction. Because what does he say? For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now that word for grieved does not just mean self-righteously disappointed. Oh, I heard that you're sending your children to public school. Well, oh, I guess some people are you know, going to do what they're going to do. And you know, the Lord will bring you along, I guess, someday. I'll pray for you. That's not being grieved. That's being a Pharisee, right? That, that's being somebody that's going to try and push your opinions on these neutral matters on somebody else. 
Grieved doesn't mean to be disappointed. It's, it's like we say to come to grief, to be shipwrecked, like we talked about, to be smote in their heart. I don't think it's right for me to eat meat. I was invited to a Christian barbecue, and while I was there, I ate meat, and I just can't get over the fact. It's all I can think about. It dominates my quiet time. I can't hardly pray or lift my eyes to heaven because I did that. That's what grieved means. Why would you ever do that to somebody? That's the lesson. That's what it means to stumble a brother or sister in Christ. To be a stumbling block for somebody is to pressure, insist, or command that they violate their conscience. Now that command one is pretty easy, right? We're never going to tell somebody they have to engage in something that is neutral. And if you are doing that, maybe you should reevaluate your priorities. But even still, we're not going to insist. No, I really think you should. Oh, you think we ought to worship on, on Saturday instead of Sunday? Well, you really ought to worship on Sunday. It's what the rest of us are doing. Paul's point is, who cares what day you worship on, right? Amen. Nor pressure. What does it mean to pressure somebody to violate their conviction? Oh, come on. Come on. What's the big deal? Well, I know it's not a big deal, but I, I just don't watch movies like that. Come on, we're all going out. It's going to be great. We're going to have fun. I'll give you one of my convictions here. I don't watch demonic horror movies. Because I'm a pastor. I might have to deal with some of that one day. I don't need Hollywood's opinions in my face, right? I don't need their creative CGI rendered ideas of what this stuff might look like. But listen, there's nothing in the Bible about doing or not doing that. But for you to come to me and be like, Tyler, come on, it's not a big deal. It's just TV. It's not real. And we are, don't we have liberty and freedom over demons in Christ Jesus? It's like if a Christian was in this movie, it'd be over in five seconds. So who cares? Well, stop doing that. <laughs> I mean, that's true, isn't it, right? You see some of these movies and the pastor is scared to death. I'm like, brother, step up and just, you know, in the name of Jesus, cast that thing out. But I'm getting off track here. The point is, <laughs> the point is for you to come to me and insist or pressure me. Tyler, come on. You're the pastor. You're the one that taught us that these things have no power over us. So why are you letting it? Just come on. We're going to have fun. Just, you know, you can close your eyes at the scary parts or whatever. Don't do that. Don't do that to each other. Because if I have determined before the Lord, I'm not going to do this, but because I want to be good buddies with you and I love you guys, I, I convince myself and talk myself into going and then I get there and my conscience smites me in the middle of it, you have been the cause of me sinning. And what did Jesus say about those that cause his little ones to stumble? He said, don't let me get hold of you. Might as well take a long walk off a short pier with a, with a millstone around your neck rather than let me get hold of you, Jesus said. It's ultimately a failure to show love. And what I just gave was a pretty mild example, right? But what if somebody is, is so convinced of this and, and they, they continually do this, like, like week after week after week. In this case, it seems what was happening is that they were eating non-kosher foods in the church gathering. And I used this example last. Imagine there's an, there's an old Hebrew man that comes to faith in Jesus, but he spent his whole life keeping kosher and doing what he can and not even eating meat, period. He wants to be like Daniel and make sure he doesn't defile himself. And now they're in the Christian church and all his brothers and sisters are there having bacon and pork chops and everything else. And, you know, he's sitting there and he wants to engage in the liberty that he has in Christ, but he just doesn't feel right about it. And then finally one day he does and it, he, he can't believe that he did that and all the things his parents said are coming back to haunt him and all these scriptures from the Old Testament and but then he comes back the next week and he does it again 
And he does it again. And now he is trapped in a perpetual cycle of violating his conscience before the Lord. You, you, you violate your conscience long enough? That's not a good thing, is it? You're training such a person to defile their conscience. And then that person eventually goes, well, you know what? If this isn't real, if I can deny my conscience here, I can deny it somewhere else. And then they come to grief. And what is a good thing? It says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Meaning, don't let your exercise of your liberty be the cause of somebody else to fall away. Now, the biggest thing, like we just said, but the biggest things that strong conscience Christians will say is, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. And as Paul said in verse 14, they're right. However, if it truly doesn't matter, for you to make that such a point of emphasis for you that it becomes a point of failure and falling away for another Christian, that's not liberty. That's selfishness. That's lovelessness. If it truly doesn't matter, why are you making such a big deal out of it? You follow me? Therefore, we determine in liberty that we're not going to do this to each other, that the gospel is more important. We want to bring people in and build them up, not drive them away and tear them down for the sake of neutral things. Remember, this is not talking about righteousness and sin here. We're talking about neutral things. So we get to verse 19 through 22. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. I love that sentence. That's such a Paul sentence, isn't it? Everything is indeed clean. There he goes again. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, and this is kind of our key verse for the day, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You can see that play on words at the end there, right? We started out by saying not judging each other. He says, how blessed are you if you don't have to judge yourself because your Christian liberty led to somebody else losing their faith? So instead of stumbling one another, our goals are, number one, he says in verse 19, peace. Now, we're really not going to get into this half so much, but I hope you'll do it at the home fellowships. And I heard, by the way, every home fellowship had great discussions on this one. But peace, meaning we're not going to fight about this stuff. Like today, we're kind of talking about the big picture, but like the, the more immediate concern is this does not need to be a usual topic of conversation for us in the church. If you know you're going to fight about it, shut up about it. I'm not quite as pithy as Paul, but right, you know, if you, get, if you know you're going to fight about it, then shut up about it. And the second is mutual upbuilding. That word for upbuilding is oikodame. It means literally house building. House building. To build something up, to build the house. We, as Christians, are to take responsibility for each other's growth and maturity as a church. Because the church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's house that is being built. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 reminds us of this truth, that we are the house of Christ. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that's Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter there, he compares us to a house. Jesus is the cornerstone, and every one of us is another stone built on that foundation. And he actually, not just a house, but a capital H house, a temple, a house of the Lord where sacrifices will be made, and that we are priests, right? And that language, both what Paul is pulling on and what Peter is pulling from, comes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. You can go look that up in your own time. Where the Lord says, I lay a foundation stone in Zion. And he says, there will be many that will stumble and be crushed on that cornerstone. That's who Jesus was. Jesus was the main part of what God was building in the church. But for those that reject Jesus Christ, that becomes something that they trip over and are crushed by rather than something they build their life on. There's only two reactions to Jesus, right? He's either going to be the foundation or he's going to be the point where everything goes wrong in your life. And this is probably the language Paul has in mind here, too, because Paul talks about us being built up, and he's also talking about stumbling blocks. So he probably has Isaiah 28 in his mind as he writes this down. And whenever you see different apostles in the New Testament using the similar passage to make a similar point, I think it's pretty cool, because it tells you the kind of things that they all knew and they all said to one another. And it makes you wonder who is the really fortunate apostle that got to discover this passage for the first time. Right? Whether it's this one or another, and then they all get to bring together and like, oh, did you hear what, what Philip had to say in his sermon the other day? No, present it to me. Well, he's talking about how we're being built out that. We're kind of like a new temple. Yeah, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Yeah. So I love seeing this kind of thing, this, this uh, I guess you call it intertextuality in the New Testament. Now, knowing that we're being built up, that the church, Jesus is our foundation stone, and we're being built up, don't tear it down. <laughs> Don't destroy what God is building. Don't find a stone and force it out of the wall and try to play Jenga with God's church. Certainly not for neutral matters of opinion. Are there days when we've got to exclude somebody from the fellowship of the church? Yes, over matters of sin and wickedness, not over matters of opinion and preference and conviction. Now, this is where we could very easily launch into a strong attack on those that, that engage in Christian liberties that we don't approve of. So I see what he's saying is it's good not to eat. So you just need to stop engaging in all that liberty you've got because I don't like it. Well, that's, that's not what Paul's getting at. He says there again, everything is indeed clean. You see how careful he's being not to, not to pull the rug out from under those that were exercising their Christian liberty? while also teaching them to love their brothers and sisters. Yes, everything is indeed clean, but that's not the only consideration. He says that it is a positive good. Check this out now. Rather than flexing our rights, it is a positive good to abstain from your liberties for the sake of another Christian's sanctification. You want to hear that again? It is a positive good, meaning you do it, it is a mark to your credit. If you are willing to give up your liberty for the sake of another Christian's sanctification. You might want to turn to this. It's a longish passage, but I do think it's appropriate to read the whole thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, Paul's making the same point, but he, he lays out this explanation much more practically. And it, it, it I think, will help us as we try to apply this to our own lives. The issue here, as I said before, was Christians were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So the, the meat would be 
perhaps offered in, in the temple to Apollo or to Diana or something, and whatever wasn't used in the sacrifice could be sold. Or perhaps they attended an event. These temples were, were often like civic centers and that sort of thing. So maybe your, your guild has a, has a meeting or your job as a business, uh, business convention at the temple. And they're offering sacrifices to the gods and then bringing the meat over. Well, you're not worshiping the gods, but who cares about the meat? Because that's not a real God, and it's not like I'm bringing something demonic into my body because it's just food. But there were some Christians that were, had such a strong conscience about this that I'm not even going to touch the meat that was offered up to Jupiter. I mean, come on. I'm not doing that. It's a similar example. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 8 through 13. He says, Not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge? That an idol is nothing. And food sacrificed to it means equally nothing. But some, through former association with idols, maybe they've got a past, right? Something that, that shapes their conscience. They eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled, meaning you pressure this Christian to eat this meat that was offered to an idol. In their conscience, I'm now having a communion with a false god. And so you defile their conscience. But he says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's the same thing with all these matters. Movies and haircuts and all that sort of thing. We're no better off if we do or don't. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. He says, yeah, you might think it's fine, but then somebody sees you doing that, and they think, well, I guess I can do it too. I guess idolatry is okay for Christians after all. This or sorry, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, wrapping it up, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see what Paul's saying? He goes, yeah, the idol means nothing. And if they're going to give you free food in the name of some God that doesn't exist, who cares? You have liberty in Christ Jesus. However, if there's somebody that you regularly associate with who just can't shake the idea that this is, this is the real thing. We're eating, we're eating demonic food. And they see you doing that, and then they're therefore led to do that same thing. He goes, what have you done? He says, so therefore, I'm willing to not eat meat, period, Paul says, if that's what's going to make somebody stumble. Now, it's a different issue he's addressing in Romans 14, and it's different issues that we ourselves address today. But the same principle applies. We ought to be willing, we who are strong in our consciences, ought to be willing to set aside our rights for the sake of our weaker brothers in Christ. Yes, I am free to do this in Christ Jesus, but I love her, I love him so much that I, the last thing I want is to corrupt their conscience or to make them fall. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to abstain for their sake. That's true Christian love, isn't it? That's like how Jesus set aside every right and privilege he had in his heavenly authority to come and dwell among us as a man. He gave all of it up for our sake. We ought to be willing to set aside our rights for the sake of our weaker brothers in Christ. Now, 
What this does not mean is that the weakest conscience in the church sets the tone for everybody else. And by that, let me phrase it differently. This does not mean that the most opinionated people in the church get to boss everybody else around. You following me on this? Well, if you do that, you're going to make me stumble. Really? Or are you just being bossy? I might lose my salvation if you do that. Are you okay? You know? It's like, you, you know that and you're going to come in and bring that up to me? Like, I'm not saying you can't even bring these things up, but many churches will do this. Where there's one strong personality that has an opinion on everything. And they seems in Pauline terms, they have a weak conscience on everything. I remember I was at a church one time and I was guest speaking and had a great time. But, you know, I came down and somebody was telling me about how much they love the Bible. I said, oh, thank you so much. And he said, you know, it's good to see young people that are following Jesus. I'm like, yeah, amen. Praise the Lord, brother. Thank you. I want to see more of that, too. He goes, all these young people who, you know, underline things in their Bibles. And I kind of did one of these. Because, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's all underlined. He says, that book is sacred and these young people are, are defiling the word of God and... It's like, does the Bible say anything about that? It does not. But I could tell this guy, this guy was not legitimate. If he were to underline something in his Bible, he's not sinning against the Lord. But what is he doing? He doesn't like that the culture is changing. And he wants to use the church as a stick to beat up people that are changing with the culture. That's not what the church is for. So let's just remember that as we go on. He's not saying, notice this, that if you have liberty in Christ Jesus and somebody has a weak conscience, that you can never engage in that liberty. What does he say? Look at this. This is very careful. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Between you and God. There's a subtitle to this message that I haven't posted, but... Today's message is called, For the Strong Conscience. Subtitle, Not Everything Needs to Be Posted to Instagram. <laughs> Keep your faith, meaning in this context, your Christian liberty, between yourself and God. This means in the privacy of your home, or when you are on an outing with your family, when you're in a group of like-minded friends, when you're in some neutral context where you cannot expect that your Christian brother is going to show up and be offended, there is no reason to abstain from the liberty you have in Christ Jesus. If you're in that kind of context, Paul says, then enjoy the liberty. God gave us all things richly to enjoy. To insist otherwise is what is called legalism. When you start to take your beliefs about certain things and not just say in the church, let's be respectful to one another, but you're saying anywhere I see you, might see you, or could potentially see you, you can't do it there either. Well, now, now you're starting to take the place of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Between you and the Lord, engage in your liberty at home. You know, when you're doing something with your family out somewhere, when you're with other believers that you know share your conviction, Okay, that's fine. In a neutral context, as I said. But among the church, meaning here, meaning at a retreat or a missions trip or a home fellowship or when you're having certain brothers and sisters over for dinner or any of that kind of thing, your conversation and your conduct need to be a little more circumspect. Those of you who have a strong conscience. If you are a place where you can reasonably expect to interact regularly with a brother or sister in Christ that you know has a weak conscience, you need to be more careful. 
You need to say, this is something that we'll save for another time. This is something we'll do at home. This is something that we'll do when so-and-so is not here. Is that duplicitous? No, it's respectful. Saying, I love you enough to not hurt your conscience, not hurt your feelings, it's not the same thing, to hurt your conscience, so I'm willing to abstain for now. And then when they're not here, respectfully, it's okay for me to engage in that. You also can do this. Don't assume that everyone shares your liberties. Don't just strut around announcing something that you know is a point of contention in the church. If you know that these people have rather strong opinions about politics, don't strut in announcing the horn of your favorite political party or issue. Don't, you don't need to do that. You're going to stir up a fight. Well, they, sh they, should be, they should know that I have Christian liberty. No, you, if you're really that strong, you should be able to say, I don't need to talk about that all the time. Don't assume that everybody shares your liberties. That means in the church, when you're talking with somebody, and let's use my earlier example, if you're going to go to the movies, or if you're going to go to a concert or something like that, then don't just barge into a conversation and try to make everybody come along with you if you know that there might be somebody that has a strong opinion about that. You can be careful about the way you bring something up. You can get to know somebody a little bit first before you broach some of these issues. You know, if, if you're going to, I don't know, you're going to go to a football game, on a, you go to an NFL game, and you might miss church, and, you go to, and you're going to go to because it's on Sunday afternoons, okay? Now, there's, you know, that's not a sinful thing to do. But there are some people that go, I don't do stuff like that on Sundays. So what you can do is you can ask them. <laughs> Before you jump out with the invitation, you can say, you know, so you, what, do you like football? Do you watch football on Sundays? You ever been to a game? No, I've never been. You know, oh, why not? Well, you know, I, I think that's the kind of thing I wouldn't want to do on a Sunday. Now what you've done is you've kind of figured out where they stand, not because you're trying to be sneaky, but because you're trying to show love to this person. By the way, those of you who have a weak conscience, if somebody very kindly and respectfully asks you about something, don't get all bent out of shape about it. You know, if somebody invites you over for dinner and they ask you maybe very kindly, says, now, do you all drink wine? If you don't, don't flip out and lose your mind. <laughs> just, just say, no, we, we don't partake, but I appreciate you asking. And now the other person needs to go, okay, we've invited so-and-so and they don't partake in drinking of wine, so we're not going to have wine tonight. That's obeying what Paul has said here. Right? Find out. Ask and ask respectfully and kindly. Don't lead with your opinions. Don't be the first thing, the most, well, if you want to know something about me, here's what you've got to know. And it's something that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and is probably going to drive some people away from you. This is why, by the way, at Calvary Chapel Trustville, we keep the scope of our activities pretty narrow. And some of you have asked me about this, of you that lead ministries or want to plan events. Sometimes, hey, we want to have a, have a movie night with the, with the men's. So, okay, probably not. Well, why? Well, just because, you know what? There's too much conflict of opinion. I don't want anybody to feel excluded that they can't come to the men's event because they might have their conscience violated. That's just respectful, right? What do we do? We teach the Bible. We pray. We do have evangelism and outreach. We pray for one another and, and show kindness, and that's about it. Now, I'm not here declaring that we're never going to show a movie at an event or that we're never going to go out and do something together that not everybody would approve of. But I'm telling you, just as a general, almost all the time rule, we're going to keep the doors open as wide as we can. Because this is not a social club. This is a church. And you guys go out and do all kinds of social clubby things all you want. Just be respectful to one another.
We are never to pressure, intimidate, interrogate, tease, or exclude anyone because of their convictions. Never to pressure anybody. Remember, come on, what's the big deal? Certainly never to intimidate each other. Now, sometimes this is so-called weak conscience people that try to intimidate the strong. How dare you? Those words don't come out of the Christian mouth except to like a heretic or something like that. We don't interrogate one another. Say, what, why, come on. No, no, that doesn't make it. Well, haven't you read this verse here? I see that your argument's invalid, so you, your conviction is wrong. We don't interrogate each other about that. We don't tease each other. Oh, so-and-so doesn't eat meat. Oh, look at the vegetarian. Here he comes. Well, I don't mean anything by it. Yeah, but now that person feels like they can't fully be part of the body of Christ unless they share your opinions about something. Don't do that. And I need to learn that one because I love to tease people. I had four children so I could get it out of my system at home and not have to do it here. And certainly don't ever exclude somebody. Now look, there might be certain things that you enjoy doing that somebody else has a strong conviction about. Maybe some of y'all, you love to play video games together and there's somebody at the church that just doesn't feel right about that. I'm not talking about, I don't understand them, I don't like them. Like, I don't think it's right to, for me to play that kind of game. I don't want to play Call of Duty because it's, I know it's World War II, but it's like it's shooting, it's killing, I don't want to do that. Okay, well don't structure your entire friendship then around Call of Duty so that this person is slowly pushed to the margins and can't be fellowshipping with you any longer. I'm not saying you've got to totally change everything you do, but sometimes it's okay to say no. Now listen, when I talk about this, in this age of posting everything online, if I've got an opinion, it's going on the internet. If I'm eating breakfast, it's going on the internet, right? And if I'm going to a concert, then you know it's going on the internet. But you've got a brother or sister in Christ that is going to be like, you know what? I was saved out of that rock and roll lifestyle, and I don't ever want to go back to that. And now here's some other Christians. Am I, am I wrong? Maybe, maybe I should go. Maybe I should get back into it, and knowing that it's going to be a temptation and a snare for them. I'm not, specifically, I'm not talking about social media, but it certainly applies there. You ain't got to post everything online. Isn't it, aren't we all kind of culturally over social media anyway? I am. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But the, the lesson, that, or I should say the, the trend that has happened is because we've grown accustomed to posting everything we think and opinionate and, and believe, that the thought of somebody coming and saying, keep that to yourself, feels restrictive. Oh, so you tell me I, that I, I can't exercise my free speech in the land of the free and the home of the brave? Well, maybe not always in the church. You're going to tell me? No, I'm telling you to love each other. That's more important than that. It's more important, isn't it? And I will say this too. By the way, if you feel constricted because you can't exercise a neutral matter as much as you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, as loud as you want, you might need to readjust your priorities. If the most important thing about you has nothing to do with salvation by grace through faith, something's up. And if you find yourself unable to say no, as in, I can't stop doing this neutral thing, are you really free? Oh, the Bible doesn't say anything about, about smoking. Yeah, you know what? You're right. But I can't stop. And maybe you shouldn't do that around other brothers and sisters. Well, I have to. Or else my fingers get twitchy. Okay, then are you really free in Christ Jesus? Are you free to say no, just like you're free to say yes? In the early church, in Acts 15... The issue was keeping the Mosaic Law, as it was pretty much the entirety of the New Testament. 
issue is keeping the Mosaic law. Paul and Barnabas had gone to all these churches in Galatia, the church in Antioch, and they were telling the, the Gentile Christians, you don't have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses to be saved. Isn't that great? Well, there were an awful lot of Pharisees in the early church. Paul was one of them, by the way. But there are a lot of Pharisees that were still having trouble letting go of that old Pharisee attitude. And so they got all upset at Peter and Paul and Barnabas, and they were fighting. You, they've got to be circumcised. Haven't you read the law? They've got to keep kosher. They've got to go to the synagogues, all of that. Well, they have a council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 where they decide, what are we going to do? And Peter stands up, and Peter says, look, God poured out his Holy Spirit on these Gentiles before any of that happened. And we can't even keep the law ourselves, we Jews. So how are we going to try to put this on them? And Paul and Barnabas stood up and they gave all their testimonies of all these Christians that were Gentiles, but they were brought into the, the worship of the one true and living God and his holy Messiah, Jesus. So James, the brother of Jesus, stood up in Acts 15, 19. He said, this is my judgment, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. So give them four rules. No, no meat sacrificed to idols, no sexual immorality, no, no food that's been strangled, and don't eat the blood. It's a very important Levitical law. But Why? Why does he do this? Verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What is he saying? These are the most important things to the Jews. So out of love and respect for them, so that they are not hindered from hearing the gospel, just, I'm not telling you what to eat, just make sure they at least drain the blood. Don't worship your idols anymore, and don't engage in sexual morality. That one is the only mandate that was repeated in the New Testament because the rest of them were just related to this right here in Romans 14. Abstain from the things that you are free to do for the sake of your brothers and sisters. They were willing to bend on matters that didn't matter so that they could stand strong on the things that did Sometimes you've got to save your strength. I'm not going to fight over things that have nothing to do with the gospel because when the gospel is attacked, that's where my attention and energy needs to go. The mission matters more. And it's the responsibility of the strong to ensure that we all get along with one another. Those of you that have strong consciences, it's up to you to deny yourself so that everybody in the church can worship together safely and freely. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You might want to underline that last sentence. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Meaning, if you're doing it, but you don't truly believe that this is permissible in Christ Jesus, you're sinning. If God has not given you that measure of faith that allows you to believe wholeheartedly without any doubt that this is okay because I'm free in Christ. If you're going to do something otherwise, it's sinful. Pretty much any conduct that we conduct as Christians. If you can't say I'm doing this in Christ Jesus and for the glory of the Lord, maybe you shouldn't do it. Now as we come to the end of this, this two-week message here, perhaps discussing today this concept of stumbling blocks and what it truly means to be a weak conscience Christian. Maybe what you have realized is that you are not a weak conscienced Christian. You are an opinionated Christian. And that's not the same thing. 
A weak conscience that somebody needs to take care of and to love on is somebody that will be spiritually harmed by somebody else engaging in their Christian liberty. If you just don't like somebody engaging in that liberty, if you just don't want to, but it doesn't really afflict your conscience any, this passage has nothing to say to you other than do not judge your brothers and sisters. It's not your job to hunt down and bring down the strong. It's not your job. Those, if you know you have a weak conscience on a matter, if you know that you're, you're going to look at somebody differently, if you know they engage in a certain thing, don't go around tracking people down. Try to find out what it is. Sometimes, and this is such a shame that this can happen, there's somebody that we admire in the faith. They're such a good pastor or teacher or worship leader. She's such a good encourager. I love being around them. I'm going to model my life after them. I have so much to learn from them. And then you find out that they listen to that kind of music or they watch those movies or they eat meat sacrificed to idols. And rather than saying, I guess those things aren't such a big deal after all, because if somebody like that can engage in it, then it must not be that big a deal. We completely reevaluate how we think about somebody? Oh, I thought that was a great pastor until I found out he believes in speaking in tongues. Maybe you should reverse that and say, yeah, it turns out great pastors believe you can speak in tongues. Or you say something like, I don't believe that Christians, well, let's put it this way. I, say, I, I don't believe that you ought to smoke cigars. I don't think it's right. Charles Spurgeon was a great pastor. Turns out Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. Well, I guess he wasn't a great pastor after all. We shouldn't do that to each other. We should let the things that matter affect how we judge one another because it is faith that saves us. But those of you who are strong need to recognize that the brothers around you who are weak in the conscience are in spiritual danger. They are less secure on the rock of grace than you are. So you need to take extra care to make sure that you are not the cause of them falling. Help them. We are willing in this church to give up whatever we must because in Jesus Christ there is liberty, but liberty must be lived out in love. Did you see in our country today what happens when you have a lot of liberty but not a lot of love? It's not pretty, is it? A lot of churches, there's a ton of liberty but not a lot of love. Let us promise to one another today we're not going to make mountains out of molehills in this church. We're going to keep a biblical proportion to the way that we interact with one another. You live out your convictions to the fullest. Abstain from the things you ought to abstain from. But don't try to put them on somebody else. That was last week's message. And if you are strong in your faith, never flex your rights. I'm going to walk, I'm going to do it right in front of them so that they know that I'm free in Christ Jesus. No, no, no. Be willing to set them aside easily for the sake of somebody else. And if we must disagree in the Lord's church, let's disagree with a kind smile to one another because God has saved us all by his grace alone. And the only thing about which we are going to take an uncompromising stand is that salvation by grace alone.